know, we can look at the reasons and that some people can find them to be persuasive and that other people don't. And I mean, you know, when we can be respectful about that and acknowledge that about each other, then I mean, I think that that's a beautiful thing. It's something that uh, honestly, I wish a lot more theist and atheist dialogues could, you know, come to that point. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your podcast for everything skeptical. Uh, we're going to do another conversation with a believer today. Today we have with us David Palman. Say hello to the lovely folks out there, David. Hello, and how are y'all doing? Doing pretty good. With me also is my co-host, Jared. Hello, everybody. Uh, so... Before we get in, we're going to be talking about the gospel stories and the Christian tradition with David. Uh, but before we get into that, David, why don't you introduce yourself for anyone who might not be familiar with you and your work? Sure. Yeah, I mean, not that anything that interesting about me. I uh, have an apologetics YouTube channel called Faith Because of Reason, and I co-host the podcast Proselytize or Apostatize with David Russell. Uh, and both of you guys have been on there before. Okay. And what's your uh, what's your background? Well, let's see. I was raised uh, as a pastor's kid. So, yeah, in a very strict religious fundamentalist family. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting. I need, to, I need to write a book about that sometime because I'm discovering that a lot of people don't actually know what that is like. Uh, but, yeah, I've kind of become, I guess you could say, less of a fundamentalist or at least less strict on some things, but still a believer. So uh, you're a Christian, obviously correct uh so yeah yeah sorry you know, just in case anybody's listening as if it didn't catch it uh so <laughs> david's uh <laughs> not one of those pastor kids who turned a godless heathen but not yet anyway we still have hope <laughs> uh so today uh like i said we're going to be talking about the gospel stories since it's the christmas season and that's uh where we get the christmas stories but we're going to go broader than the nativity which was our last episode if you haven't heard that check it out um, so, David, when it comes to the Gospels, what are they to you? Yeah, I look at them as essentially uh, ancient biographies, So, uh, and I kind of look at them in two different ways. So when I'm having a more of a, a critical or some might call it a more apologetic discussion like this one, then uh, I try to defend a very minimalist view of them, which would be that they are, you know, basically basically reliable, because I think that can be defended. Theologically, uh, I go beyond that, and I uh, would say this is more of a faith commitment, but I would also view them as being divinely inspired and inerrant, but that's, that's a stronger claim that I'm prepared to defend, so that one is essentially a faith commitment. So yeah, more on the more critical level, I just view them as basically reliable. Uh, Greco-Roman biographies. I was going to ask, it's interesting that you have like kind of two different opinions about what the Gospels are to you. How do you uh, personally reconcile like having a more minimalistic viewpoint uh, for apologetics, but also have like a higher viewpoint of them as far as your, your faith goes? Yeah, so I don't see them, uh, those as being contradictory opinions. So if they are divinely inspired, inerrant documents, then that also entails that they are historically reliable. So uh, I don't see them as being in conflict because the stronger claim entails the weaker claim. But uh, I don't think that the stronger claim can be proven in, um, in any sort of strong sense. Uh, Whereas I think that the weaker claim is much more defensible. So, you know, theoretically, I could give up. Um, 
my my high view of it if I you know was faced with some irreconcilable contradiction or something in the Gospels. Uh, but uh, as of yet, I don't think I have a really you know conclusive reason to do that. Okay. So just to be clear, you uh, you said they were inerrant, and I I've talked to several Christians who have uh, differing opinions on what that word means to them. Uh, so what when you say they're inerrant, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean that to the extent that um, to the extent that uh, what they are saying uh, is what is intended by the the original author. So whatever the original writer of the gospel is trying to communicate, uh, that is going to be inerrant. So that doesn't mean that they couldn't use um, you know an example or something or have an assumption that would be commonplace in that time that would be wrong like for example in the old testament um i think it's very clear that uh there's an assumption of like uh like a flat earth and such in there but i don't think any you know passage in the old testament is trying to teach us about the shape of the earth so uh, i'm okay with there being you know assumptions in there or illustrations in there that uh, are based on you know flawed and incorrect uh, views, but my my personal view of inerrancy would be that whatever is uh, trying to be communicated by uh, the author, that will be without error. And so, would that would you consider that like partial inerrancy or full inerrancy uh, in terms of like uh, scholarship goes? Or uh, I think my view would be pretty. It would be a pretty high view of inerrancy uh, to go to go as far as I do, but it's not. Um, I would say it's not rigid inerrancy. So I don't, you know, go as far as some people who would. <laughs> I have one friend who does think that the Earth is flat because he says that is, you know, obviously the biblical authors believed that the Earth was flat, and I'm, I agree with him that they they probably did, but um, I don't see that as being taught. So it is a it is an important distinction there between what is being taught in the passage, like what, what's the point here, and what other assumptions does the author hold that he might be using to get that point across. Okay. So the authors can make mistakes, but the and that doesn't interfere with your definition of inerrancy as long as it's not like it wasn't the point of the story they're trying to communicate. Yeah, maybe an example would help. So, for example, uh, Jesus uh, at one point says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, right? Well, we know that that's not mm. true. Uh, apparently, it's a, a certain type of orchid that actually has the smallest type of seeds. Now, if Jesus were... Checkmate, theist. What's that? <laughs> I said checkmate, theist. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, if Jesus was trying to give a botany lecture here, then, yeah, that would be an error. But Jesus is not trying to give a botany lecture. He's uh, trying to use a, you know, a common example to his audience to, you know, say that you don't need uh, a whole lot of faith for big things to happen. So he says, if you have, you know, the faith of the mustard seed, even though that's the smallest of all seeds, you know, you can move a mountain. Uh, so he's not trying to, you know, teach here uh, what is, you know, the, the size of the mustard seed in respect to other seeds. Just he's appealing to something that his audience would have regarded as small and, you know, making a point with it. And so I think Jesus' point there is true, that with just a little bit of faith, big things can happen. But um, do I think that the specific example he used and, you know, what he said about it, that uh, the mustard seed was actually the smallest of all seeds? No, I don't believe that that's true. So how does one tell the difference between a mistake in assumptions and a mistake in fact? So like, what, what process would one use to determine, like, the mustard seed thing is kind of obvious because he obviously wasn't trying to teach them about 
the different sides, sizes of seeds. But is there a, a kind of process you go through to determine this mistake is okay with inerrancy, but hypo this hypothetical mistake would not be? Yeah. Um, so, you know, whenever we're interpreting what somebody has to say, uh, and this is especially the case when we're dealing with older documents uh, that are written to other people in other times, uh, you know, trying to interpret that is a process known as exegesis. And I know that's typically used uh, of, of, you know, scripture, but it's also used in other fields, you know, when people are trying to interpret Aristotle or Descartes or whatever, they'll, they'll give an exegesis, an interpretation of what um, they are, you know, think that the person's trying to say. And so, um, you know, I, my view would be that theoretically, if, if scripture is inerrant, then if you have done proper exegesis, that is, you, you know, you've applied the rules, like you've, you've assessed what can the words possibly mean based on the context or certain meanings ruled out. And so, you know, a, a lot of it's pretty much common sense, right? Like, uh, so uh, again, back to the example that I brought up before, uh, it's pretty clear that, uh, that Jesus's point here is not to give a botany lecture. So we know from the context that he's, you know, he's making a spiritual point. And, you know, we see this all the time in Jesus that he's uh, using these uh, stories, parables, illustrations to make um, a greater spiritual point. And so, I mean, it's not always as clear, right? Sometimes it is more difficult to tell. And there, there are certainly controversial portions of scripture, but you know, I think that basically we can apply pretty common sense principles to interpret what is the author most probably trying to say here. And if you have understood that correctly, then my theory of inerrancy says that that teaching should be true. Now, it could it could not be true. You could interpret it correctly and it could not be true. And that would falsify my view of inerrancy. So it is falsifiable. So do you have like a is there like a hermeneutic that you apply to to scripture when you're studying it? Um uh, critically versus like, you know, doing it devotionally or something. Uh, or... Jared, if you could pretend that some of us in this conversation aren't theologians and explain what that word means. Yeah. So uh, our hermeneutic is basically. Obviously I know what it is, but I want you to explain <laughs> it for the other people. Yeah. So the hermeneutic is basically the steps that you would take to uh, go about your exegesis. So, um, there are different hermeneutics throughout, you know, that Christians apply. We're particularly talking about Christianity here, um, but some Christians will have like, you know, step A, do this, step B, do this. Uh, I was just curious if, and so the hermeneutic is like the loop that you use to examine the, the, the text. So I was wondering if David had like something that he's studied as far as like a process that he has a consistent hermeneutic throughout scripture or whether or not his, his exegesis kind of varies depending on um, how he views the, the particular text. Yeah, so uh, I would hold to the grammatical historical view, uh, which is basically, uh, so my, it, it is what I expressed before, that uh, the proper interpretation of a text is what the author was intending to say by it. Because uh, Jared's right that, you know, there have been other views, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some of them. <laughs> uh, well, like uh, there was like a Byzantine one, which uh, went into like a lot of metaphor in scripture. Uh, I think it was Augustine. Said, like, every verse had like at least five distinct meanings to it. And uh, so there have been some really weird ones. Uh, 
I begin uh, what I think is a pretty, you know, commonsensical way is you you assess what's the genre of the particular book I'm reading. So uh, I would read Job uh, or the Psalms a lot differently than I would read something like the Gospels because uh, it seems that the you know that the Psalms is well those are songs and Job that that's a poem. Whereas when I'm reading the Gospels, it looks like I'm reading. Uh, more narrative. So uh, yeah, you do read these sorts of things differently. And I, I don't think that that's, you know, special pleading in any case, obviously, you know, we, we read Shakespeare differently than we would read, um, you know, a, a book of history today. Well, yeah, I'm gonna apply different, um, different standards or di different interpretations if I'm reading a comic book or a novel, than if I'm reading a science textbook or a peer reviewed paper. Um, so that makes sense. Uh, so it seems like there's at least an element of subjectivity, right? So like, cause you're having to interpret what you think the intent of the author was. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I would say no more than we have with any, anything else, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be, um, you know, what do I think is being said here? And, you know, there are certain rules that, you know, you can apply to, um, try to, try to mitigate, um, bad interpretations. So, um, for example, uh, there's, authors will tend to use words in the same way. So if I, you know, am I reading, um, like, let's say the book of Hebrews, and there's this really controversial passage in chapter 10, where it talks about uh, someone being sanctified by the blood of Christ. And, you know, people on my side who believe that you can lose your salvation, will the person here is being described, it says that they're sanctified, and it says that they go to hell. Uh, so that pretty much that pretty clearly seems to me then that this, someone who is saved could still you know lose that salvation, uh, and people who believe that you can't lose your salvation then you know they'll say well sanctification it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean being saved there, and so you know to argue against that I'll you know appeal to like other uses in the book of Hebrews of this word sanctification where it always refers to salvation. So you know there are ways to try to mitigate biases and stuff by like you know trying to be consistent. Um, by looking at the context. Uh, so there are rules that I think really do limit it down to, um, you know, maybe just a few possible options, or even in some cases, really just one reasonable option. But yeah, I mean, th sometimes there are cases where, you know, you've got a lot of good interpretations that are all possible. And so it, it may be. I was going to say, I like the other camp better because then I get to go to heaven anyway, even though I'm a godless hero. Yeah. Once but I guess saved, always saved, bro. Woohoo. But then the other camp would just say, well, you weren't really saved. So, you know. <laughs> they always do punt just... to that. Yeah. You, you'll know a tree by their fruits, son. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, uh, well, I was going to ask, uh, yeah. David, as far as the we're kind of focusing on the Gospels a little bit, we don't have to um, to do that if you'd like to go somewhere else. But when we're talking about the Gospels, and you said they were biographical, do you think that they were – that they are either a eyewitness accounts or b written by eyewitnesses. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Do you, when you say written by, do you mean like actually physically penned by the eyewitnesses themselves? Yeah. For example, let's say if if we're saying that Mark was written by Mark, and maybe that wasn't his name, maybe it was, but did Mark actually view the accounts that happened with his own eyes? Um, that kind of eyewitness. Right, right, yeah. So uh, in the case of Mark and Luke, certainly not. We're not dealing with uh, eyewitness accounts here. Uh, my view on Mark is that he's writing um, his recollections from Peter. So I, I would think that we do have, you know, pretty close connection 
to eyewitness testimony here. But uh, as far as, you know, the person who's writing it, it it's not Peter, it's Mark, who would not be an eyewitness. Uh, and, you know, the same applies to Luke. Uh, he mentions in the prologue of his gospel that he gets his information from eyewitnesses, but clearly himself would not have been. Uh, Matthew and John, I would view Matthew as uh, being written probably by Matthew himself, so that I would see him as being an eyewitness. And then on the Gospel of John, I think there were probably two editions of it, because we've got a mm -hmm. lot of stuff in our present Gospel of John that, um, you know, uh, it, it just doesn't... It almost, um, it reads very differently, I guess I could say. It's got a very different style, especially near the end, right, where it's talking about how this is the account of um, the uh, the beloved disciple. But then he also goes on to say, uh, it seems that the, the reason the Gospel of John had this ending added onto it was probably because John died. And there was this uh, story circulating that John was not going to die until Christ returned. And that's why we've got like this whole thing at the end of the Gospel of John where, uh, you know, Jesus says, um, I think it's to Peter. He says, you know, if if I will that John lives until I come back, what is that to thee? Follow, follow me, you know? And uh, so it, it seems that some Christians had taken from that this idea that John was going to live until uh, Jesus came back. And so that's why we have uh, this thing on the end. He says, oh, well, Jesus didn't say that he was going to live until he came back. He just says, if he wanted him to live until he came back, what's that to you? So it, it seems like this was added in very much to, um, you know, correct this idea. And so I think that was certainly added in after John's death. That seems to be the reason for it. So I think we had an original gospel of John, uh, either written by John or, um, you know, dictated to a scribe, how, however that worked. But then that you also had stuff added in later to, um, especially to correct this misunderstanding. And I have just a couple uh, thoughts here, um, kind of pushing back on your earlier thing with inerrancy. Um, do you find that 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 any troublesome that somebody would add something into the gospel to correct something of an earlier edition? And is that still in Aaron at that point? Or would you just uh, say that that is that the edition was divinely inspired? Yeah, so my view would be that um, God inspired and preserved even those revisions in it. I don't think that these were changes to it. So for example, the Gospel of John, this is just something that's added in to correct uh, this misunderstanding that um, that John was going to live until Jesus came back and saying, oh, well, that's that's not what Jesus said. He, he never promised that John would live until he came back. Uh, that, that doesn't contradict or change anything in the Gospel of John. So uh, it, it would be a problem, I think, for inerrancy if you had uh, editors coming in and, you know, actually changing the content, changing the message, and that, that would be very problematic from my understanding. What about things like the ending of Mark, you know, which for those who may not be familiar, you should go check out our episode on the Gospels, shameless plug. But uh, just the, the Cliff Notes version, as I'm sure you know, the, the original documents of Mark didn't have the last little bit of Mark um, after the women um, leave the tomb. So that was added at a later point by some Christians which I assume you don't dispute. I mean, there, there is argument. So there are some scholars who will argue that it is original, but yeah, I, I tend to side with you that it probably was something that was uh, added in later. Uh, and we've got another example of that in the gospel of John as well. The story of uh, the woman caught in adultery that, um, 
you know, was going to be stoned to death and that uh, Jesus, Jesus forgave her sins also seems to be uh, added into the Gospel of John later. In fact, it turns up in the Gospel of Luke in some manuscripts. But uh, no, I, I don't think that that's true. Sorry? Which is such a good story, you know. Like, you can't make a Jesus movie without that story. It's so good. Oh, no, yes. It's, it's very, you know, it's very touching, very heartwarming. And, you know, uh, especially those of us who are Christians, you know, it's something that we love to, you know, envision Jesus doing. But in terms of the evidence, it probably wasn't part of the original Gospel of John, like, almost certainly. But, uh, no, I don't think that that challenges it, uh, because we, the reason that we know that these passages weren't in the originals is because we have a whole bunch of early manuscripts that don't have them there. So, uh, no, we just, you know, we recognize that that's something that was added into it later on that, you know, is um, may or may not have happened. But um, in any case, it's not it's not part of what's divinely inspired. And, you know, some versions don't include it. Other versions include it, bracket it off and, you know, with a, a note telling the reader that, yeah, this probably is an original. Uh, I don't think that challenges uh, my understanding of inspiration at all, because it, it would just applies to the original document. And so as long as, you know, we're able to tell what that original document is and, and from the textual evidence, we can get a pretty good grasp of what that is, then it, it's not problematic. So we don't, so the only the originals that were written by whomever wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are what was divinely inspired. And then also whatever, that there were some divinely inspired edits, but at some point the divine inspiration cut off, right? Yeah, I would say it's uh, what is uh, what was accepted as canon by um, the church. So, uh, you know, and it, and that's going to be a whole history lesson there. But basically, yeah, what we have accepted pretty near to the end of the first century there, that has generally been what Christians have um, understood to be the canon of scripture. And so, yes, my view of uh, inerrancy would say that after the canon is established, then edits after that point are not um that those are not part of uh, what God inspires into scripture. But it's always possible that there could have been edits prior to the earliest manuscripts we have. Like you said with Mark, we, the reason we know that that ending wasn't there is because we have a manuscript from earlier. So it's always possible, if not necessarily probable, that there was an edit to the divinely inspired text and we just don't have a record of it. So is that where like the faith would come in, where you just... You, you believe and you're not going to defend it because you can't rigorously prove, but you, you believe through faith that what we have accurately reflects the what autographs, to use a more technical term. Well, so here would be my view that if we come to the point that we do believe that God inspired scripture, right, then it would also make sense to think that he would preserve that. And so then, yes, but it, it is a faith commitment. It's certainly not something that I can prove, and that's why— when I'm, you know, being being more critical and not, um, you know, not not talking with other Christians, then I, I just will defend, you know, a, a more minimalist view of them. But yes, through faith, it makes sense to me that if God uh, inspires Scripture, then He will also preserve that Scripture. Well, you had said that, you know, uh, you thought that maybe Matthew and John were or um, eyewitnesses. Do you hold to like the the scholarly consensus of like the datings of like Mark and priority, or do you think that uh, Matthew priority is, is more accurate since you think that he was uh, an eyewitness? I hold to a form of Matthew priority, and so let me explain a little bit my view on that. So I think that of the four gospels that we 
currently possess. I think Mark was written first. But I think that Matthew had a first edition of his gospel, either in Hebrew or Aramaic, and uh, that this one was written prior to Mark because uh, Papias identifies Matthew, I think it's Papias, identifies Matthew as writing his gospel first and to the Jews in mm -hmm. their own tongue. So that would be my view is that we had a, a more primitive version of the Gospel of Matthew. That one was written first. We don't have that anymore. We have that uh, revised and um, even drawing from material in the Gospel of Mark. And so the, the present Gospel of Matthew that we have, yes, I accept that that was written after the Gospel of Mark. So, so which was the one that we don't have? That one wasn't divinely inspired. God was like, nope, that's not good enough. I'm going to inspire the next one, though, so keep on working, Matthew. Yeah, this, this yeah, rough draft isn't good my, enough. you got to do it again. <laughs> as far as my view of inspiration goes, it, it's hard to tell because it, it really is just a theory that this um, document ever existed. But uh, as far as my view of inspiration and inerrancy goes, uh, I would just say that uh, all the information that was in that gospel was also preserved in the gospel of Matthew that we have today. And then, that, you know, obviously additions to it were made from, you know, the M source as well as, or, or well, from the gospel of Mark. So I think that Matthew pulled from Mark and, uh, you know, wrote his own gospel. So the information wasn't changed. So it's not problematic for my view of inerrancy, because again, it, it's, it's, uh, it's bound up in what the author is trying to teach. And so I think Matthew is trying to teach the same things, but then he's just adding more teachings to it. So I don't see it as being problematic. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, um, in terms of like uh, when the Gospels were written, if they were eyewitnesses or if they were getting their sources from eyewitnesses, um, is there a point to where you would see it problematic? Like we did an episode on on the eyewitnesses in the Gospels, but um, let's say if it became like fourth or fifth hand up, um, information, um, would that be problematic for you? Or is there like a point where you would draw the line and say, okay, yeah, at this point, I just can't see how this could be divinely inspired or in your mind, it doesn't matter. Well, so as far as divine inspiration goes, if you're going there, then it's not a problem. But more fundamentally, so part part of the reason that I believe scripture is divinely inspired in the first place is because I think at least certain portions of it are reliable. So if you undercut uh, historical reliability uh, in, say, the Gospels, because that would be very important for me, then you have, in fact, undercut um, the evidence that I would have for believing in divine inspiration in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, I would not be able to appeal to inspiration, I would say. And so, yes, it would become extremely problematic if we are getting uh, too far away from the eyewitnesses here. And so uh, I think, yeah, if you can get to like third or fourth hand accounts here, then um, that's at least weakening the credibility of it. It's not completely undermining it because, uh, you know, obviously reliable information can still be transmitted. But yeah, if you've if you've uh, got if you know if you push this back to third or fourth hand account, then I think that that deals a significant blow to the reliability of the Gospels. I would just like to say too, I really appreciate your honesty and answering questions. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's encouraging yeah. and refreshing to talk to a Christian who would be like, "Yeah, if this was the case, it would be a problem." So uh, I just want to well, commend yeah, you on that. I was I was gonna I was gonna say the same thing. That reminds me a lot of like when Mike Lacona, he was in. I can't remember the interview, but he was in an interview, and someone asked him like, "How uh, confident are you that the resurrection the resurrection happened as narrated?" And he was like like 85%. And I was like, whoa, like that is 
way lower than I expected you to say. So like the, the level of intellectual honesty that it takes to admit like, you know, that you don't know something or the, the limits of your faith. That's a, you know, we, we applaud that here at Reason to Doubt. Um, well, and it's nice to so be in gold, dialogue gold with uh, <laughs> It's nice to be in dialogue <laughs> with atheists that are also, you know, reasonable and open to, um, you know, hearing what I have to say and not, you know, just wanting to condemn it as not possibly having any support. So I, I appreciate the, uh, well, your side of the discussion as well. Yeah, we try uh, not to be a dick. Okay, enough <laughs> of being nice to each other. So, um, so it, it seems like that, that's really interesting. That it seems like you're saying your faith commitment that they're divinely inspired is only possible because you've already been convinced uh, that they're reliable. So, like you have, just like your your YouTube channel's name, faith because of reason. You have the faith that they're divinely inspired because of the reason that they're historic that they're historically reliable and so you kind of you were convinced of their reliability to a point so that lets you buy the rest of the farm is that a fair summary yeah absolutely uh so you know the way that my argument would look is that uh first we'd have to establish that the gospels are historically reliable and then uh, if you have established at least general reliability to the enough that enough to that you can believe in the resurrection of Christ and that you could believe um, at least some of the sayings of Christ, then I think we have sayings from Christ that um, suggest that the Bible uh, would is divinely inspired and even that forthcoming revelations uh, that these would also be divinely inspired. And so that is what I would appeal to for um, my justification for believing in divine inspiration in the first place is that it, it is hinged on uh, the the trustworthiness of Christ, and that in turn is hinged on the trustworthiness of the Gospels. When you originally believed um, in in Christ or accepted Christ as your Savior, or you know, accept salvation, however you want to put that phrase, did you have a reasonable understanding of the Gospels prior to that or original faith declaration? Or did you have a faith declaration and then say, I'm going to go and look and see that my faith is reasonable? I don't know if that question makes sense. No, no, it does. Yeah. Uh, no, as, as I said uh, in the beginning, so my father was a pastor, so there was never a time that I can think of where I wasn't you know, aware of the gospel message and wouldn't have said that I believed it. Uh, I made a profession of faith, and indeed, I believe I became a genuine believer when I was 10 years old at Bible camp, and I certainly did not have a rigorous understanding of the evidence for uh, the faith or anything. I, I mean, I, I wasn't encouraged to think about those sorts of things, uh, and just the, the possibility that the Bible could not be true. Uh, these were not things that entered my head at that time. Uh, it was when I was you know, 17 and 18 that I really began asking these sorts of uh, difficult questions of, you know, why do I think it's true in the first place? And so when I you know, came to the place that I thought that there was good evidential support for the reliability of the Gospels, uh, I already you know, had believed at that point, but um, at this point, I came to more of a intellectual justification for that faith, because I think if I hadn't come away with what I deemed to be good reasons, then I, I would have forfeited my faith. We'd hope so. I mean, that. otherwise you'd have to change the name of your YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, no faith because of reason. <laughs> faith because of faith, uh, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got some Romans up in here. Um, so suppose that... Uh, we determined through whatever mechanism was sufficient uh, that 
the Gospels were not, in fact, written by eyewitnesses. Maybe they talked eyewitnesses, or but but they were. Matthew wasn't written by a dude named Matthew who was there. It was written by some other Greek-speaking Christian uh, living around 60 CE. Would that be enough to say, okay, this stuff is? Would that be enough to shake your faith? Basically, is what I'm what I'm getting at. That alone would not, but um, because uh, well, this might be something we can agree on is that my epistemology is very much evidentialist, and so one of the strengths of an evidentialist epistemology is that your beliefs are supported by evidence, and in this case, I think by multiple lines of evidence. So, I think I have a lot of reasons for thinking that the gospels are reliable. That would, you know knock out one. So if you knocked out, you know, one that maybe Matthew's not written by an eyewitness. Okay. But you know, I got, I got 19 more. So, you know, if you um, start knocking out, you know, like, and, and I will say some of these are a lot more important than other ones. So, but yeah, if you like start, uh, if you like threw away the gospel of John, for example, and the gospel of John was like, that was just complete fiction. That's a big pillar. So, you know, that's, that's throwing away, um, a major support for my uh, belief in the reliability of, you know, uh, well, in, in in the, um, in the truth of Christianity and even in rely or even in belief in uh, the other gospels. So yeah, if you start knocking out uh, multiple points and certainly uh, really important ones, then yes, that would begin to um, at least cause me to reevaluate. All right, Jared, write that down. We want to make sure we have a good checklist to go by. Yeah, I just want to, uh, I'm, going to have, I'm going to have David offline give me all 19 of those points so we can start. <laughs> there, we got another podcast. Uh, so how do you um, how do you deal with things like in John? Uh, he appears just from a plain reading that uh, John's timeline for the crucifixion is different than in the um, in the synoptics. synoptics yeah. So it. Yeah, in the synoptics, it appears that Jesus dies on one day, and John, it appears he dies the day after, um, after the Passover. Or he, in the synoptics, he dies after the Passover, and John, he dies before the Passover. And in John, I believe he dies at the moment that the the same time that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed, because for John, Jesus is the Lamb of God. So I guess the first question was, is, do you think that's nonsense? And the second follow-up question would be, okay, suppose it is true, would that matter? Is is what true that there's a genuine conflict here? That that John uh, moved the date, or John has a different date for the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, than the synoptics do. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So, first of all, I, I think that there are ways of resolving that, and due to my high view of biblical inerrancy, I would be inclined to embrace a possible resolution there, even though I'm willing to admit that I think this resolution is. Um, might be what's considered ad hoc, meaning that it's not uh, really parsimonious, and the only reason that you would accept it is if you already have a commitment to um, biblical inerrancy. So not presupposing that, then you could say that um, one of the biblical authors, and probably John, was just wrong on that. Or you could say that by literary standards of the time, it was just not a big deal if a person, you know, changed the timeline uh, for the purpose of, you know, the story that they were telling, because certainly the Gospels are telling stories. They have big themes and stuff. And so uh, people like Mike Lacona will argue that uh, for John's themes here, he it was it was you know conductive to his purpose to change up the timeline there. Uh, I, I'm happy with either of those 
solutions for present purposes because ultimately I just I don't think it's a big deal. So it seems like though if John is willing to change and and I agree that that um from the point of view of the author of John he's trying to communicate a theological point. So I obviously can't prove this but I suspect that if we could resurrect whoever wrote John and we said, hey, John, how come you have a different date than Mark? He'd be like, you're missing the point. You know, the point is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But um, with that said, it that tells us then that the gospel writers are willing to change things. Like historical accuracy is not as important to them as theological or, or like telling the, the deeper truth, right? So wouldn't that undermine their reliability as historical narratives given that they, if they did, have a demonstrable uh, tendency to change things when it worked better for telling a story? Well, by modern standards, certainly would. But um, I think this is where it becomes important then to be consistent with how we evaluate historical documents. So if, uh, and, and uh, oh goodness, it's been, it's been a long time since I've studied this, but if scholars like Mike Lacona are right that uh, this is something that was commonplace in um, biographies in that day, that um, it was just not uh something that would have you know even been considered change it, it wouldn't have even been considered tampering with the historical accuracy to switch up timelines or uh, like richard balkum has a theory about um like the sermon on the mount that this isn't describing something that actually happened but that this was just um a literary device for uh you know, capturing a whole bunch of sayings of Jesus and, you know, stringing them all together. Uh, if they are right that by, you know, the standards of their time, then that, that this would not have been considered problematic, then I don't think it poses a, a big problem. I think it does mean that we need to be, you know, careful on that, you know, understand that these are not as straightforward as uh, we might like them to be or even have thought that they were. But I don't think that that would deal a death blow. No, not if it's something that's, uh, common practice for historians of that time. Well, I wouldn't say it'd be a death blow either. I mean, it would just change the way that we have to view them. You know, they're not, basically it would change. I think a lot of Christians, um, particularly those who are lay people and just haven't spent a lot of time digging into the history like you have, uh, that these are just like, they wrote it this way because that's what happened. Whereas I think the more, nuanced view is that they wrote it this way because they were communicating a truth and they were writing in a particular genre at a particular time and it was normal for people to do that at that time. So I, I think that you're right that it would mean we'd have to change the way we'd look at them. But you'd still call them inerrant at that point because they'd be telling a story that was in some sense true even if if we'd went back with a video camera, it wouldn't have happened that way? Well, so no, if they are switching up events like that, then that would um, that would cut against my understanding of inerrancy because now uh, they are actually expressing contradictory things. Uh, and, you know, the author is, you know, he, he's doing that deliberately, uh, you know, to get his point across. But no, I think that that would contradict my understanding of inerrancy. I don't think it would contradict all understanding. So, but yeah, yeah if that, if I came to really believe that that is what was going on in the gospels, then it would not um, undercut my belief in their historical reliability necessarily, but it would definitely uh, force me to probably reject my current understanding of biblical inerrancy and uh, either reject the doctrine altogether or see if there was a, a more robust understanding. You said you believe in biblical inerrancy because of the historical reliability. You're, you're convinced to that point. Um, but there are things like 
things that Mike Lacona, who certainly, if anyone's not familiar with him, he's a Christian and he's also a, a great scholar. Um, so he's not like an adversarial source or anything like that. Uh, if you if you were convinced of things like what Mike Lacona believes, that that would deal a blow to your inerrancy. Um, what is it about the Gospels that convinces you enough to go the further step without evidence into inerrancy? What what about the Gospels convinces you up to that point? First, let's talk about a little bit about uh, criterion for historical reliability, because uh, it's going to be a question of you know what what standards do we have for um, you know historical reliability, and then does uh, do the Gospels you know match up to that in uh, in you know in a, in a significant number of areas? And I think they do. Uh, obviously, uh, first before you can have uh, historical reliability, you've got to have textual reliability. And I don't know where you guys stand on that issue, but at least I'm persuaded that the New Testament is it's it's very well textually attested uh, that we can you know reconstruct what the original said with a very high degree of probability, you know, much better than we have for any other document. So you know when we have uh, you know when we're reading the New Testament, then we have um, you know that we have today, then we are reading very close to what was originally written. Uh, now, obviously, that doesn't mean that what's being written is true, but it does mean that it's been accurately preserved. Uh, so necessary, but not a sufficient condition there. Uh, another one, I think, would be uh, testimony. Well, people who are in a position to know. So are these written by eyewitnesses or are they written by, you know, people who had access to eyewitnesses? Uh, and this is, I think, where uh, something of, um, well, a question of uh, bias might come into play here. So, you had mentioned before that the gospel writers are trying to tell a story, and I agree with that. So the the um, the gospel authors are not just giving us straightforward history. These are evangelistic and they are apologetic stories that are being told. Uh, and I think that they are accurate because for me, uh, I think that uh, it was the truth of the story that motivated them to be telling it in the first place. But we're not quite looking at like just you know, uh, straightforward narrative here. So there definitely is motive in there, but I don't uh, have any reason to think that there is a nefarious motive here. So uh, I don't see any reason to think that they were, uh, you know, twisting things in a way that would uh, distort the truth of them. Uh, so, you know, uh, this again goes back to the question of eyewitness testimony, of course, as well. Uh, in the case of John, uh, it's specifically said to have been written by a disciple. Uh, the beloved disciple who I, I take that to be John, uh, really all the gospels, uh, the traditional authors, these are the only known candidates for them. We don't have you know, any rivals for them really. Uh, so, you know, we have some external testimony there. And additionally, uh, we have, you know, corroboration with other historical events of the times, uh, archeological discoveries that uh, corroborate with them. And I mean, and we could go into much more detail on all of this, but, um, you know, th those are some of the, oh, it's sorry, early dating as well. Uh, I think that at least the synoptic gospels can be pushed uh, before AD 70. Uh, and so, you know, by historical, by ancient historical standards, that, that puts us pretty close to the events that they're describing. Uh, and yeah, I'll let you give whatever pushback you want to give. I agree that they're probably not nefarious. I don't think that you need to assume that the gospel writers were intentionally lying to get any other points across and i don't think even necessarily if john had had changed that means he was trying to lie so much as he was just being a creative storyteller but they certainly could just be mistaken right like they could believe with all their heart soul and mind that jesus rose from the dead and just be wrong right 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that's a that's a that's a valid possibility. So how would we how would we know how how would we determine whether that was true? Because what we're trying to what the gospels are trying to convince us is that this person was killed by the Romans and then came back from the dead three days later, which is something that nobody has ever done before or since. Well, I guess some people came back to life, but you get my point. It's not very it doesn't happen often, and so the the, the more parsimonious or, or the more normal scenario would be these guys are just wrong. They're telling us something that's physically impossible and we know people are wrong about things. So all else being equal, they're probably just wrong. So how, how would we tell? Yeah. And I think that that's a good question. Uh, so you have to remember, I take God's existence to be demonstrated on other grounds. So uh, it's a part of my background, you know, uh, information that I bring to the table that, uh, miracles are possible because God exists. So uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying you do reject them a priori, but uh, to me, this is something that, you know, is not only possible, but even to some extent expected that if God exists, that he would want to reveal himself uh, and that a good way to do that is through miracles. So I already have reasons to believe that miracles can happen, again, if the evidence is strong enough. And uh, so, again, I would go back to that if we have, um, you know, if we're not go- if we're going to be consistent with how we interpret history, and if one is not committed to um, methodological naturalism, so you allow that miracles are possible, then by you know regular historical criterion, uh, these measure these measure up. And so, if you want to say that uh, that you know that they are just mistaken, then I think that you do need to give uh, you know you need to give evidence for that as well, right? Uh, or else, or else, you know, start. Uh, undercutting the arguments that are being given in favor of their reliability. So I uh, show that, you know, they're not that early, that they're not really written by eyewitnesses. And, hey, we also have reasons for thinking that they might have just been making this stuff up. So I, I think an alternative hypothesis that better fits uh, the evidence that we have, it would be required. But what about other ancient books that have miraculous happenings? Those, we, we, we should, I, I think, I don't think there's anybody that thinks that, um, for instance, that uh, Alexander the Great's mom was struck by lightning in her naughty bits, and that you know made mean she was gave birth to Zeus's kid. You know, so like there are miraculous stories in ancient texts, but those we reject pretty much out of hand because we know that's the kind of stories that ancient people told. So uh, would it would it be fair to say then that if you didn't come to the to the table already believing in the Christian God that you wouldn't accept the resurrection on the merits of the gospel alone? Well, I want to be careful to say it's not that I believe in the Christian God per se, but I would come to the table of the question of are the gospels reliable, believing in the existence of God, uh, but not, not okay. specifically the Christian God, because that's not... Same question and drop that. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to be clear there. Uh, oh, goodness. What was the question? Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> So if you came to the Gospels without a prior commitment to theism, like you, you you weren't convinced that there was a God, you weren't necessarily persuaded of philosophical naturalism or anything, but you're just not, you don't come with that background belief. Would the Gospels on their own be enough to convince you that the miraculous things in them happened? 
or would you need that prior exist that prior belief in God to come to that conclusion? Yeah, and th- that's a good question because that's not a position I've ever been in. So I I don't honestly know how I would feel if I didn't um you know if I was open to the possibility of miracles, but um also was not persuaded of the exist of the existence of God, and then was just approaching the Gospels. I have never been in that situation, and so I can't tell you if I think the evidence alone would be strong enough to persuade me. Uh, I would want to say that it is strong enough on its own. I, I think it is, but um, I, I honestly couldn't tell you if I would be persuaded. That's a fair answer. I don't know is always a good answer. We like that here. Um, can, can you give me the Cliff Notes version of why you're, you come to the table with that belief? Like, why I come to belief, uh, with the belief that God exists? Why, why, yeah, yeah. You, you should ask, I should ask a question, then you should rephrase it in a better way, and then I'll just say what you say. And that's <laughs> sure. I mean, and I'm, I'm sure you guys are, you know, going to be familiar with these, but um, to me, uh, a universe that has a beginning that, that strongly uh, seems to suggest that there is some sort of cause for that. Uh, you both know that I believe in the, the theory of intelligent design to a point, so I think that. Uh, biological complexity and information. I think that that is uh, best explained by an intelligent mind. Uh, Also, uh, my belief, uh, well, so, you know, obviously we have the ability to reason, right, to think. That seems to me that that is something that's best explained uh, if there is a purposeful and intelligent designer of the universe. It it seems highly improbable that we would have this ability given, uh, you know, mindless and uh, not not necessarily purposeless processes, but certainly processes that, uh, you know, for all we could tell, uh, would not be designed to make us think purposely and deliberately and rationally. So, uh, you know, that would be just you know a few reasons right there why i think that god exists your story is very similar to my story uh, but we just came out on on different ends of the spectrum um and so when i hear you you speak and stuff uh, a lot of the same things that you went through and uh thought processes and everything are very similar so it reminds me of myself in a way um un- unlike you though when i was going through those pillars that you talked about earlier my study started knocking out those pillars and I got to a point where I only had a few pillars left and they weren't enough to hold up my, my faith. And so I end up having to say, well, I don't have enough uh, sufficient evidence to support my faith at this point. It sounds to me like you, you, you look doubt. at, yeah, I had reason to doubt. Um, <laughs> uh, it sounds to me like you, <laughs> when you study these pillars and stuff, like you actually, you're finding more pillars as you study to put into place. So even if a few knock out, um, you're, it doesn't matter because you're, you have other ones that are starting to come into place there. I don't know if that is accurate or not, but. Well, I think one thing we can see here then is that yeah, we agree that there are the pillars there so that there are reasons that, you know, uh, and I think both of you would say that, well, I, I would hope you would agree that somebody could be rational and be a Christian. So, uh, but maybe it's not enough to persuade you. And, uh, so I, what I like about that, if that's what you uh, would both agree to, is then that, you know, we can both acknowledge that, you know, that there is some room here for doubt, uh, <laughs> the name of the podcast, that, uh, you know, we can look at the reasons and that some people can find them to be persuasive and that other people don't. And I mean, you know, I, when we can be respectful about that and acknowledge that about each other, then I mean, I think that that's a beautiful thing and something that, uh, honestly, I wish a lot more theist and atheist dialogues could, you know, 
come to that point. Well, I think it would be pretty, uh, it would be pretty full of hubris of me. It'd be pretty um, prideful for me to say, given that, what is it? 80% of America is religious or more uh, to some extent, 80% of America says they're Christian. I think it would be pretty silly of me to say the vast and overwhelming majority of people are rational and completely unreasonable. I don't agree that their beliefs are, I don't think they have sufficient reason. It's not, it's not sufficient to me anyway. I'll say that I'm not persuaded by the same level of evidence and experience that they're persuaded by. And I think obviously there are going to be people who believe for poor reasons, just like there's people who don't believe for equally poor reasons, but it would be ridiculous for me to say as a blanket statement, you know, every Christian is irrational. And the only reason they believe is because they haven't thought about it and blah, blah, blah. Basically I'm not Aaron Ra. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, um. (laughs) Uh, Since we're coming up on an hour and, uh, yeah, we want to be respectful of your time. Before we close out, uh, David, is there anything you want to end with or uh, pitch some project you got working on? I'll just say the, the there's a principle that I've operated on, which is uh, reserving everybody's own right to be persuaded um, by the evidence. So I encourage people to look at the available evidence that is there. Uh, and, you know, if you find it to be good and you know sufficient uh you know it doesn't have to be a conclusive proof we we all agree here that the evidence for christianity that it's not it's not conclusive it's not undeniable and i wouldn't say that it is Uh, i encourage people to look at that and uh if you if you find it to be strong like i did then um then you should believe it and you know if you don't find it to be sufficient uh, as as jordan and jared then uh you know i I respect your right to not be persuaded by it but uh, I think we are all interested in the evidence, and so uh, some of us are persuaded by it, and some of us aren't. And uh, sometimes it's just uh, that's, that's sometimes that's where the disconnect is. Here, here, I think I can wholeheartedly endorse that entire entire sentiment. So, guys, that's our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, uh, give us a like on whatever platform you're using to listen to this and comment on your thoughts, whether they're good or bad. We always love criticism. That really helps people find the channel and. Uh, sharing it with other people. Uh, if you want to suggest things that we should talk about in the future, maybe you got somebody you want us to talk to or some question you'd like us to answer, head on over to the Reason to Doubt Facebook page and drop us a line there. We'll get back to you pretty quick. And uh, so far, I think we're close to 100% uh, response fulfillment rate. So strike while the iron's hot. Uh, anyway, guys, I uh, hope you guys have a happy holiday and a happy new year. And remember, you always have reason to doubt.